Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing at our best when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Now, our guest this episode is Dr. Jen Wagner. Now, you might remember Jen from episode 71, where we talked about unleashing human potential. We're going to go in a similar but sort of different direction today, which I'm really excited about and I think is seriously important. Now, Jen has spent 20 plus years in human performance, including time as a D1 athlete, time as faculty of pediatric anesthesia at Stanford, time as the director of perioperative services and the co-chief of anesthesia at Shriners Hospital for Children, and time as the chief medical officer and director of operations at the Liminal Collective. These days, though, she's the founder and CEO of Prosper, a company devoted to women's holistic performance. And in that capacity, we're going to be talking today about helping women optimize their current and future states and helping world-class organizations attract, develop, and retain their female talent. Now, before we get started, a quick reminder. If you want to join individuals and teams around the world who are working to perform better during times of crisis and emergency, there are so many ways to get more involved with the Emergency Mind Project community, and we would love to have you. The easiest way to get started is to try the free crisis skills test, which you can find at emergencymind.com. All right. All that said, let's get into it. And so please help me welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Jen Wagner. Jen, thanks for coming back. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Ah, Absolutely. I am so looking forward to digging into this. I think this is a real hole in a lot of the different systems that are being designed for training elite performers out there. And there's just not enough stuff about it, either as uh, an organization or obviously from my perspective as as an ally or somebody who wants to help women achieve their best potential and performance in my organization and and folks that I'm training and working with. I don't even know where exactly to start attacking this from, but like maybe some backstory, like what got you interested in this space to begin with and and this this pivot into this part of the universe? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, it took a lot of time and experience. And then to be really honest with you, kind of a break and being able to really reflect on where my life was. And I know we were talking just before this about when you're in medicine, your life is usually very linearly laid out for you as a career. And I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to have my clinical situation changed quite drastically without my control a couple of years ago. And that gave me an opportunity because I there was not another clinical scenario for me to walk into without really uprooting my family again. So it gave me the opportunity to pivot and go back in the performance space, which then really let me take a deep breath and reflect on everything I had done in my life and really decide what I wanted to do. And as an athlete and as going through medical training and as a physician, I just felt like we weren't talking to women. And I had both of my children as a resident or a fe- and a fellow and no one ever really asked me what I needed, if I needed anything, what would help me get back on track, like if my goals had changed, if, you know, if anything had changed. And then when I spent time as the residency director and assistant fellowship director at Stanford, we weren't asking our female trainees those questions either. We were starting to get a little bit better, but it was still this, we did it, you'll be fine kind of attitude. And then when I got back into the performance space, I realized, you know, we would have these very elite teams, often non-athletic teams. You know, we had corporate teams, we had military teams, and we were never asking the women any different questions than we were just asking in general. And I think that women often face a different set of responsibilities 
that society has just kind of branded as these are somewhat female responsibilities. And it's not even all around child rearing. You know, that that's a significant portion of it. You know, it affects lots of women that don't have children and don't have families. And so I just thought I had this amazing, I met this amazing group of women from so many different disciplines. Well, I, through my time at Liminal, we started talking almost two years ago saying, how can we bring all of our knowledge from all of our different disciplines and go out and help make the world a better place for women? And not just for women, but for everyone, because we know societies flourish when women are flourishing. And now that women are 51 to 52% of the population, we can't continue to ignore them. You know, we need them in the military. We need them in medicine. We need them in corporations and we need them to ascend to leadership positions and stay there. And we just see this huge dropout in leadership, whether we're talking healthcare, military, the corporate world, we just need to fix that. So that's kind of how we found it prosper to say, how can we empower the women to feel have a strong voice develop maybe a different set of resiliency skills than they've had in the past? And then how can we help organizations really identify the roadblocks that are existing for the women in their organizations, whether it's culture, whether it's promotion vehicles, et cetera, at, to really help women feel empowered, feel like there is a place for them in the organization and a pathway towards a leadership position within those organizations. There's so much in there, right? There's like so many different threads to take from this and to drive forward with it. And I think that digging into this appropriately forces all of us to look at a bunch of different levels of scale at what we're doing, right? And because a lot of this is like, okay, how are we training individuals? How are we encouraging people to perform in various specific situations. And those are you know, obviously what we're going to talk about here is more of the high stakes, high pressure scenarios. Mm-hmm. But then also as systems and organizations, we talk a lot on the podcast about creating intelligent defaults right, around mm-hmm. designing systems mm-hmm. that tend to have optimal outcomes be the default outcome for it. Mm-hmm. But is that probably also something we need to get into, like how to design a system yeah. that supports people better? You said that one of the ways we started getting into this is that we realized that we're not asking women questions and the right questions. Maybe that's the right place to start. What should some of the questions we collectively be asking? I think these are questions we should probably be asking everyone to be honest. Sure, I think they just, you know, what do you need in this environment to succeed? What is the one thing if we could take off your plate that would make every day easier? What would that one thing be? And it may not always be possible. But my guess is there are small things that can be done that could make a huge difference in someone's life. You know, I was talking to been to be a male cardiac surgeon who was responsible for taking his kids to school. And he's like, if my OR started at 830 instead of 730, half my morning stress would be gone. And I was like, why isn't that possible? It's not costing it. Like, why is 730 the magic hour? And I bet if one person is saying that, that probably 50 people have that same problem. Daycare is not open at seven, but daycare is open at eight. So I can drop a kid off at eight and be at the hospital. Or there are much more childcare opportunities if you look for childcare that opens at eight or a nanny that'll show up at eight versus someone that'll show up at 6.30 or seven. And so I think there's, you know, there's lots of little things, you know, working with women who've decided to have a family instead of feeling guilty, which I think many top performers are about taking time off and being home, rephrasing those conversations to saying, what's the best pathway for you to come back? You are important to this company. You are important to this organization. 
We want you back. What's the best pathway for you to come back? And then to keep that conversation open as that time goes on, because oftentimes you have that conversation as a woman before you've had a child, especially if it's your first, and you don't know what your life's going to be like. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen with your partner. You know, don't know what, you know, you don't know if everybody's going to be healthy. So you might have one plan when you have that initial discussion, but does anybody have that plan in those six to 12 weeks before they come back saying, how are you? What can we do to smooth this transition? Have new things come up for you? So I think there's a lot of those decisions. I think having a culture too, where organizations are demonstrating what they're doing for almost all of their talent, but really for women. You know, do you have a culture where if a woman says something in a meeting and a man takes credit for it, there is a sense of psychological safety that someone can sit up and say, you know what, actually, so, and you know, Actually, Mary said that. And I think that's a really great idea because I think that's what often happens is, you know, we're sitting in meetings, we're sitting, especially at the higher and higher levels and women say things and they're, they're talked over and they're immediately, someone else is taking credit for their ideas. And so is your culture set up and are, are the leaders noticing that? Have these issues been brought to the attention that the people in the room are aware of it? So if that behavior exists, it's quickly corrected. And it doesn't have to be punitive. It just says, Oh, actually. Still said that, you know, and I thought that was great. So I think just all of those little things, I mean, they're not, it's not revolutionary. These little things can make a huge difference. So I'm hearing two different arcs in that, right? So one is an arc of what is essentially, yeah, I guess I'd call it personnel development, right? Where you're saying, what does this human need in order to perform at their best, right? And it's things like designing the environment around them to optimize performance. And there's just an endless supply of ways in which the hospital system does not function like that. Right. In which the hospital system is designed to be an unyielding force against which you are crushed as a performer and you try to find your way through the cracks. Right. I mean, it, literally everything is like not designed in the way that you'd want it to be. And then another is creating sort of the baseline launch pad for everybody, which is talking about things like building psychological safety into discussions, talking about things like redesigning some of the cultural norms about how we communicate in some places. I wonder if it's worth discussing also like this paper that just came out from the NHS within the last week, which which I will admit I have read blips of, but not the whole thing, talking about the prevalence of sexual harassment and sexual violence towards surgeons and specifically towards female surgeons. And like, you know, this is just like table stakes, right? Creating an opportunity for everybody to feel safe at work and in order to right. and start performing. So I don't know, maybe we have three threads in there, but but what feels yeah. compelling to get into? You know, it's really interesting. So I've spent the beginning of this week in Washington, D.C. with an amazing group of women participating in a briefing on Capitol Hill for Congress about women's performance. And the end point was to get to like, what is the current state across health and wellness, sports and athletics and the military really? And the end state was to get to how do we get more women into the military and keep them there was kind of the bottom line. But hearing from these experts, from physiology, researchers, scientists, people who have been involved in sports and athletics, physicians, clinicians, and then warfighters, like our female warfighters. And, you know, so this is just you know, you talk about building a system is having the information available. You know, we know physically how women should prepare for basic training. And it's different than how men need to prepare. But 
to achieve the same outcome, which is to complete basic training successfully and go on and have a successful military career. But we don't provide that information anywhere. Like how hard is it to have a tab on the Go Army website or whatever branch of the armed services that says, if you're getting ready for basic training, if you are a female bodied individual, here are tips. If you are a male bodied individual, here are tips to be optimized coming in. So I think it just starts with, you know, it starts with the basics. You know, I think that going a little tangential here from what you asked, but women often, and you know, this is embarrassing to say as a female physician, but we also don't even understand our own bodies enough Hmm. to understand what's happening inside, which then affects our ability to perform optimally and show up optimally day in and day out, especially in high pressure states. So I think we have to break a lot of this back down to say, do women even understand what's going on with them? Because I was sitting in a group full of very, very talented female physicians and we were laughing about how we've had to go to outside sources, outside of our medical training to really learn about a lot of things that go on in my body daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, et cetera. Not only learn about that, but learn how it impacts me when I'm in a high pressure situation, learn how it impacts my ability to recover, learn how it impacts my ability to, you know, mentally be on and be sharp and all of these things. And so then it's like, if I understand that better, I understand better how to help create the environment in which women do feel optimized and teams feel optimized. And so I think it is kind of breaking things back down and making sure that women, and I mean, I think it starts with our teenagers, understand that their bodies and their physiology because then they feel better and they feel more optimized and they feel more confident about what's going on and they can handle some of this societal pressure because it all makes a little more sense. And then it's hmm. saying, okay, you understand what's going on. Now can you learn to use your voice to talk about it, to say, you know, this is what I need to thrive in this situation. And I think, you know, we're terrible at that in medicine. Like, do we ever ask for a raise? Do we ever ask for a different working condition? No. People that hear your job, you're like, okay, thanks. And you go on and there's often this attitude, well, if you don't want it, there's someone else who does. So we don't need to make any expectations. But I've been shocked when I talk to other people in these high stakes environment, when they do find their voice to go ask for what they need, oftentimes people say yes. We're just never taught that. And so I think until people start asking, we're not going to know how to fix the systems. Until people say, this is really what I need to, to do well here. And we, we start having those conversations. Instead of like, you know, we, we go for your annual performance evaluation. Why can't there be three questions about what's the one thing you would change in the system? What's one thing that would make your life a lot better? How could we get you to stay working from 55 to 60 instead of leave at 55? What would make a difference for you? All of these things, instead of this constant pressure saying, I put my head down, I go to work because... If I say I don't want to do it, they're just going to say there's 50 people behind you that will. So if we could start from scratch, right? We mm-hmm. could redesign education in a lot of different ways from the very beginning yeah. and have a <laughs> lot more, right? Like, I mean, let's, let's get into it, right? So we could have a lot more sort of like components of understanding and introspection and introception about what's going on in, in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And we can use that as creating a space where people are more able to talk about and more able to notice and sort of make explicit some of the struggles and issues and strengths that everybody has going on. 
I don't know on this podcast if we've ever thought about like fundamentally re-altering like the entire public education system. Like, <laughs> level of goals, big goals. Like, we might need a broader audience before we have the capacity to do that. Although I, I love that idea, right? Like jokes aside, I mean, th- like there are ways to do that. And maybe that's what we start with. Okay. So like as physicians, as people that operate under pressure, how do we start affecting the change at that point? And then the, the sort of sister question to that is like, how do we continue to affect that change in the areas where we seem to have more leverage, which is like medical education in particular? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it comes back to, you know, the work that we've all tried to do is understanding where the stressors are, where are they, what are they, and how do we optimize for them? There's always going to be a trauma bay with a trauma coming in. There's always going to be somebody crashing in the OR in the ICU. And most of us actually like those environments. Like, you know, it's that bell curve. And most of us like to be in that sweet spot. It's when we get tipped out to one side or the other and are overstimulated or understimulated. And how do we get back to normal? And I think that, again, I think it goes back to, you know, whether it starts in medical school or residency or even as new faculty, like, is there a place to learn about this, to talk about this? Mm. Why do we let people get so burned out that they walk out of the hospital and never walk back in? Why aren't there some safety nets there before that? Why aren't people taught to say, you know, these are small symptoms that all of a sudden one day can become overwhelming. Like for me, I am a morning exerciser. And I knew when I stopped doing that, like that should have been a red flag that something was going on. Like I, for 15 years, I had no problem getting up and going to exercise. And then all of a sudden, that became less frequent and less frequent. So I think there's little things, but no one was talking about it. There was no space to say, gosh, are you guys just really tired? Are you sleepy? Like nobody asked these really basic questions that if you take an elite basketball player, every one of those metrics is measured. I mean, you look at pilot, theirs are measured. And like ours, you know, ours in medicine are not. And so I think it's so easy to go down these paths of, Burnout, which is the word I hate, but I, for lack of a better one, we'll stick with it for right now. Because there's no stopgate. No one's checking in. So is there a way to just put some of that into a system? And I think the generation behind us is better. I think they have more guardrails. I think they are more comfortable saying, and maybe that's because some of them have been established and we have better rules around residence. But how do we switch that to when you're finished with residency? That those guardrails can stay in place. That, you know, you go from literally one week saying you can't be in the hospital more than X amount of hours. You have to have so many, so much time off between shifts. You can only work this many hours a week to someone saying, we don't care what you do. You know, it's so scary. Is there a way to create some of those same tools that exist that we carry on? And so people understand, like when I start to feel this way, when I am not sleeping, when my routine is changing, those might be subtle red flags that I am moving down a bad path. And can we rewrite that path? Is there enough checking in processes with mentors, things like that in the system that stop this overwhelming mm-hmm. catastrophe that's lined up? Yeah. I and mean, I, I think my initial gut response to that is like, no, there are not those things in the system. Like it doesn't exist oh. that way right now. And I, I think part of the resistance to at the moment, we're not talking about like specifically performance for women. We're just talking about performance yeah. for physicians in general, which is that like if you ask people, are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you depressed? Are you functioning? You're going to have to do something with those answers. 
right? And I think that's a scary thing to ask your team because they're not probably going to be great answers. And it's a scary thing to answer because I could imagine how I would have felt about that when I was in training, which is like, well, I'm not going to answer this. Like this accomplishes nothing. Nobody's going to listen to me and we're going to go tomorrow to do the same thing like we were before. Only now we'll get a mandatory yoga session, right? Or like the equivalent. I love yoga. But, I, I hate I hate hating on yoga, but it's just not the answer to fixing all of this. Right. right? I mean, we were offered yeah. yoga at noon. I was like, you're going to shut yeah. down the operating room so we can go to <laughs> yoga at noon. And again, I love yoga as well, but like that's not the right band-aid. Okay. So what can we do about this? And I will agree that even talking about it is better than not talking about it. Right. Even just starting the conversation and being like, hey, how are you taking care of yourself? Like, what is it that you need personally as a human being? And then a subclass of that question, which is like me thinking about, you know, the residents that I'm working with, the teammates that I'm working with who are women being like, what can I do to support them in the way that they need? And to make sure that we are, as you put it, like attracting, developing and retaining our ultra high class talent. But what can we do other than talk about it, right? Like, where do we start nudging the system? You know, I think, again, it goes back to... You know, I look at some of the work that like Brian Ferguson and his team at Arena Labs are doing, which is sure. crucial, right? I think we have to start to break down the barriers. And, it, you know, it's maybe easier as a resident before they're completely built up to start there to say, you know, you actually, you need to track what's going on because, you know, in your 20s and early 30s, you can probably, you feel more recovered, you can kind of work around a lot of these metrics that are flashing red at you saying you're overstressed, you're not recovered, you're not sleeping, you're not moving correctly or enough, et cetera. But as we get older, like that catches up to you really fast. And so can we start programs like what Brian's trying to do with Arena Labs, I think is are they're crucial for giving individual insight and empowerment into their own kind of well-being and how they are showing up every day. Because I do think it makes a difference on how you start to live your life. And I think we have to take the fear of retribution. There ha- and again, this is the problem, right? It's like we can say all these things, but the staffing models aren't there to say, oh, you need a day or you had something traumatic happen to you yesterday. You didn't sleep all night because maybe you lost a patient that was unexpected or and these catastrophic events happen in our careers that we're s- supposed to just file away and move on. And there's no redundancy in the system to say, wow, you should probably take the day off. You know, this was really bad. What do you need? And so I think until we start to recognize in ourselves our patterns, because everybody's a little bit different and everybody's needs are different, but I now know I, I need to sleep. If I'm not sleeping, I can't show up and take care of people. And it's actually it's a disservice for me to show up and take care of people. It's a disservice for my patients, disservice to my own personal health and well-being. So can we start at the basic educating ourselves about when I do this, I feel this way. And so maybe it is making some lifestyle changes that we can be responsible for so we can show up and be optimized the, the best we can. And then it's taking that data, I think, and showing administration, this is what your people need to feel their best. And so then hopefully what it does is it does change staffing. It does change protocols. It does change hours. And and I think, unfortunately, medicine right now is moving the wrong way with private equity and things buying medical practices, just saying, do more with less. 
all the time. Yeah, there's a, a real sense of, we certainly feel this in the ER in a lot of ways, like, you know, there's a sense from the outside that we are replaceable widgets, that basically yeah. anybody can step in and fill that role. And in part, that's what we train for, right? Like we train to be able to pick up whatever's in front of us and, you know, run with it, right? And this conversation that Scott Weingart and I had on, you know, a few episodes of the podcast back where he's talking about training people that you can drop them into literally any situation and they can organize the team around them and perform ultra high quality, elite level critical care and resuscitation, right? Like that's part of what we train to be. That's part of our identity, right? Like you, you go out mm-hmm. and you do this thing. But there's a, a a darker side to that, which is this widget nature of it, that you're just replaceable and can be swapped in at any time for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. you're right that like like that's not how most elite teams work outside of medicine. And I don't even know if we should point towards you know acting more like a basketball team than like a group of ER doctors, right? I think that's a whole broader question about the the direction of pointing for that. But I think that there are are certainly lessons to be learned from that and. I guess I keep coming back to this like, okay, so we don't like being widgets. Great. We, we want to learn more. We can measure stuff. We can talk about stuff. Well, what do we do, right? How do we change this? And maybe we have a group of people listening to this who are somewhere in the middle, right? They mm-hmm. are team leaders or shift leaders or shift captains, but they're not department chairs. They're not mm-hmm. heads of hospitals, but they're listening to this and they're saying, you know, Jen's saying we need to help our women providers and our women operatives learn more about themselves. And we need to create spaces where they are safer and better able to express themselves so that we can help them flourish, basically. So how do we do that? How do those middle tier folks nudge the environment around them to make that happen? Yeah, I think that's so important. And, you know, especially coming from women, that's often where women are leading, especially in healthcare. You know, you look at our nursing culture and Mm -hmm. um, in that middle tier, Teams are often led by women. Depart, you know, nursing departments are often led by women. And I think it's anyone who's in that mid level really actually knowing their team. This comes back to, you know, team dynamics. Like, how well do you know your team? How much trust is on your team? Because if that team has trust and those teams, those smaller teams, create the environment where teams function well, you know, there's a psychologically safe place in that team, et cetera. Then that team leader can go, to their manager, their leadership and say, I have person X. She is critical to being part of this team, whether she's on my team today or your team tomorrow. She is critical to keep her in this institution. She does her job, you know, or his job or whoever's job it is. I think it. we are afraid to compliment people as well. You know, we are afraid to go to bat for other people. And there is not, a great, almost, I don't even want to use the word, maybe recognition is better. I was going to use reward, but I think there's not a great recognition system that this person provides high quality care in whatever environment they get tossed into. They are a true team player. We need to check in with them to say, what can we do to keep you in this institution? Hmm. And I think if we flip that mindset to say, I'm going to go advocate for you. Like, there's plenty of room and space when something goes wrong to write an incident report or to criticize someone. And medicine is really good at that. We're really good at pointing fingers. We're really good at throwing people under the bus to say, so-and-so didn't do their job right. But we're not very, and there are consequences when you get those reports and there are consequences to having those situations occur. 
there are not very many positive consequences for people to say, you know, Dan runs an awesome team. Every time he's in the ER, the team, you only have so much control over the outcome, but like things are done well. The team feels respected, you know, that we get great feedback from patients and families. Like none of that ever has seemed to matter, you know? And so is there a way that that can be highlighted? And so the leadership begins to know who is the talent in this institution and how do we keep them? We'll probably never get away from that visit, but maybe we will at least start to recognize these 15 people in the emergency department, this department could not run without. We need to make sure that they are recognized, that we are checking in with them, et cetera. We need to make sure that they have been noticed by their peers as the standout leaders, regardless of what their rank is. You know, oftentimes mm-hmm. leaders step up mm-hmm. and from very different levels. These people continuously come in, stand up. Maybe it's that they hold space for other people. Maybe they're the person on the team that people feel like, gosh, I just need to have a cup of coffee and talk to you for five minutes because I feel like I can talk to you about things. And those are really important people to have on the team, you know? And so I think, is there some positive sort of recognition that then means something? Sure. Maybe they're chosen for leadership programs if you get so much positive recognition. Maybe, is there some kind of pay it forward? So when times are bad and when things are going crappy, they go, this institution has my back. They know what I do. They know what a good job I do. And this is how I'm rewarded for them. And right now it, it seems to be, I mean, and granted, I've been out of medicine for a couple of years. I will admit that. But it was like doing your best was a given. And then you were punished if something wasn't quite your best. But you were never rewarded for going above and beyond. And you were never rewarded for being the go-to person. You just got more added to your plate. Yes. I'm, I'm going to not editorialize about various places that I maybe have or work at. I think there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there that has to, you know, like we're drifting into like safety one versus safety two. We're drifting into what does excellence look like? We're drifting into what is the esprit de corps of a place and, and what is connecting people to the, to borrow a word from the Maori culture to the whakapapa of the folks that come before them and the reason for why they're there. Um, and and connecting that mission to the reality of what your people are facing is a really big deal. And that is, that is leadership that we're describing in some sense, right? And it's leadership from all levels of the, of the institution. And you're right that it's not the, the way a lot of stuff goes a lot of the time. I don't know what to do about that. I think that anytime I hit one of these places where it's like, well, Maybe that's something I could control if I was the fill in the blank of some title or position that's higher than I am now, right? I try not to drift into that. And I want to ask instead some version of like, well, what piece of this do I have control over and can I modify? And I I think it's a great question. Like we've started to do a little bit of the work laid out by like Eve Purdy, Vic Brazel and their team about like building psychological safety in emergency teams in part just by doing introductions, the beginning of a lot of shifts. Right. And like, that's like a pretty no brainer to start with. But also, you know, I don't think that I have ever asked, I've asked residents, but I don't think I've asked any of my nursing staff. I don't think I've asked any of my, my allied staff, like what their next set of goals are in their career and how I can push them towards that. 
like sometimes it's obvious, right? Like you have a paramedic student come in and they're like, I am here to put IVs in. And you're like, amazing, great. Let's help you get IVs yeah. in, right? Or yeah. like, I want to work on assessments or, you know, we're, we're fortunate mm-hmm. enough to work with the, the Navy Trauma Training Center. And like, you know, these are our corpsmen and folks who are coming up that are trying to get more access to trauma training. Awesome. Yeah. That, that's a, a thing that I can help them get. I'm actually not going out of my way to do a lot of this, and I, this is this is a good challenge for me to incorporate more of that into you know the shifts that I'm personally working on, even if I can't necessarily alter the trajectory of the entire institution. I think it's keeping away at it. You know, I think mm-hmm. you know when I talk to some of the women that we're working with, and I've been guilty of this too. I was like, if I put my head down and work hard enough and do a good enough job, people will notice. Well, guess what? They don't. They don't. You know, and so it's such an uncomfortable thing to do, but you have to push it forward yourself. You have to write a little note. Hey, you know, this went really well today. I thought you should know. I I just was reading a leadership book the other day and, you know, this woman was stating how she went into her review. She was known kind of um, in this large company as kind of the connector and she connected a lot of people. And that was a way that she really excelled because people were much more efficient because she connected them and really helped develop relationships within the company so people could com- were communicating better and therefore improving efficiency. And that is work. And that's often work that women do that is very non-quantifiable. And so you can't really... But how do you say that? But she goes in for her professional review and she, they said, basically said, you're not visible enough. And she's like, how am I not visible enough? I do all this connecting everything. So she started sending the direct leadership above her every week on a Friday would, would review in like two or three lines, bullet points, the people she'd connected. And for six months, didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden got called in and said, was, it was acknowledged like, I had no idea that this was what you were doing. And this is a job very well done. And so I think that we are very hesitant, especially in medicine, to do anything that seems or would appear self-promoting. And so I think it's establishing that culture that, you know, and I tend to do that on my team. Granted, there's really no one above me on my team. But like if we go to work with another company, I really try to say, this is so-and-so on my team and this is what they can do. And at least once a week, send something out about one of my teammates to an institution that they may be able to do some private consulting at or where they could do something even outside sure. of our own company because they're a rock star and they deserve that credit. Awesome. And so I kind of think that as leaders, if we can identify people and encourage leaders of other teams, encourage that middle management, you don't need to wait until you're asked for who's performing well on your team. Push that up the ladder, push that up the chain. So people are recognized early and supported early and not until, oh, so-and-so is going to retire. We should now look back and see who's in the mix. Like they're already being developed and people have known about them. And maybe there's opportunities that they can go attend career development courses sure. or whatever career they're in that they can have a career advancement plan just because they've been noticed and Mm. the institution realizes how important people are because they say we're widgets, but we're real expensive to replace. (laughs) You know, we really are. And so it's like, I think that's kind of lost. You know, you leave medicine, it's a million dollars to replace you. That's a huge institutional cost, right? And that's not counting for 
patient safety changes when they mm-hmm. when you have to bring someone new in who doesn't know the system. That's not counting for your gained wisdom and experience. That's just to replace you as a human, you know, just to put the next widget in. And so yeah. there is a big cost. And I think if we can start helping people learn how to self-promote a little bit or really being the champions of recognition. And maybe it doesn't change right away, but I guarantee you if, if you have a great colleague who is a few years behind you and just really great team player, you know, whatever characteristics you are looking for. And every time you send that to your department chair, so-and-so showed up really great today. Like it doesn't have to be monumental had a challenging leadership scenario and really, sure. really performed above and beyond. Sure. And those people will start to get noticed. And I think it changes the dynamic. You know, it changes the dynamic of the team and it eventually changes the dynamic of the organization. And people feel respected and they feel cared for and they feel that the institution's investing in them, which I think has lost a lot in medicine. Um, mm. And now it's why we leave. Yeah. Jen, our last few minutes is I, I want to change direction slightly and dig into a problem that I don't know if I, I'm probably doing some things wrong and I don't know what they are. One of the situations that we encounter frequently in emergency medicine, and there are parallel situations to this across all of the domains that we tend to talk about in the Emergency Mind Project, is having junior leaders step into leadership roles and start to run crisis situations. And in emergencies, that typically looks like resuscitations, either medical or trauma, or cardiac arrest events or something like that. And that tends to involve one person really adopting a leadership persona and a leadership role, galvanizing a team around a problem set, organizing diverse resources and deploying them where they're needed. That type of leadership of running a room successfully is something that has a very, I don't know if this is the right word or not, gendered component to it, right? That is mapped onto differences between how men and women are perceived and Mm -hmm. specifically how women are capable of leading in these complex situations. So there have certainly been times when I have been talking about what I'm learning and what I'm teaching about how to lead a room. And I've had women residents come up to me and say, hey, you know, like, I'm not sure this is going to work for me or how do I do this differently? And there's a problem in there about knowing how to teach people how to lead and about creating spaces for women to be the excellent, effective leaders that there is zero actual doubt that they can be. So what do we do with that, right? How do we approach that problem? How do we teach people how to do that? Can we solve all of this in the next six minutes? No, I think I think if I had a straightforward answer to that question, I wouldn't have had on the company I just found it, right? I think Touché. that, I think that's what we're trying to figure out. I think it, because it, it is across all genres. And, you know, I, I laugh because when I went into medicine, my dad said, don't ever introduce yourself as doctor. <laughs> I laughed. I'm like, if I don't introduce myself as doctor, I am anything but the doctor, assumptions aside. So I really think it starts again early in education with, Confidence and confidence training and, uh, and identification that because I agree with you, we tend to default. We have these default patterns. And if you and I are standing at the head of the bed, they are going to default to you. 
that that's just what happens, whether it's right or wrong. It's what happens. And I mean, I used to have a male resident with me who is 15 years younger than I am. And patients and families would default to him because he was he'd be like, it's my first day. I don't know. You probably want to ask her. So I think it is one when I think simulation can do a lot for this. I think I think it takes practice. I think it takes practice for teams to start Mm. to identify with different types of leadership. And it gives those leaders a chance to practice a little bit, maybe some techniques that they're somewhat uncomfortable doing that they can say, okay, but it takes simulation in a multidisciplinary environment, which we're not very good at doing. And I don't think Mm. we're very good at doing in medicine. You know, for an anesthesia, we go in the simulator and and the simulations were awesome, but they were all anesthesia residents in there. So we had no problem listening to each other because we understood. But I wasn't in there with a maybe a 65-year-old nurse who had never seen a woman in my position and a 70-year-old male surgeon who wanted to be the boss when I needed to take over. And I think think learning to practice in those real-time environments are really important. I think, I go back to your introductions. I think walking in and confidently stating your name and your role is really important. And we lose that. And the time to do that is, you know, at the beginning of a shift. Like, it's really important to say, hey, this is who's running trauma tonight. This is who our team leader is. And so I think that, so those roles are well established. So when they come in and start taking over, and then I think, and I talk a lot to women about this, is we have to speak with confidence. We have to come in. And so many women are so confident in these situations, but, you know, there's still this default to say, oh, I'm sorry, or to not delegate in the same way sometimes. And we're almost taking in too much information instead of really being a little harder and saying, no, you need to take that information to so-and-so. Like, that's not for me right now. And so I think it is practicing a communicate because those scenarios do take it a gender neutral communication style, right? Everybody sure. almost needs to learn to communicate in a very similar pattern. So whoever's in the room is used to the cadence, is used to, you know, there, there's a reason there's algorithms for these scenarios and things like that. So we move in an organized setting. And so I think it's getting used to communicating in that style. And I think that just takes practice. But I do think the introductions make a huge difference. I really yeah, do. Me. I think, especially when there's shift work and people are changing all the time. And, it, and you know, it takes 10 seconds. But when someone calls me by name in a room versus hey, anesthesia, I'm way more involved and engaged with what's going on. Because I feel like they've invested the two seconds it took to learn my name. Yeah, right. Like there's a, you could imagine the type of communication that happens when you're in a cardiac arrest and everybody is already clear on the roles, right? Yeah. Like that is, that is like, leadership, gender neutral, everything going and it's cooking, right? You're like, I am the captain. This is what we're doing. And it goes. Mm -hmm. But often it's the transition points between normal and chaos, between Mm -hmm. nothing and a code. First off, where the leaders can make the most difference, right? Like That's like the most difference you can make is recognizing a disaster before it's coming, seeing around the corner and pivoting your team into it when you're the first one to see it. But that's also sometimes the hardest to do what, what you're just describing. I think it just, it comes back to what we talked about, about breaking it down and really understanding yourself and how you find your voice. I mean, I remember being in an OR one case I took over, kiss bleeding. I asked over the grapes a couple of times to the surgeons, who are my good friends? And we had a great relationship. And they're like, no, 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 no. I finally said, okay, everybody in the room, stop. 
this is what's going on. And so I think you have to have that internal confidence and that trust of yourself and that trust of your inner voice to say, this is not right. We are not moving in the right direction. I need everyone to stop. I need us all to say, to evaluate where we are, all listening to the same information and make a plan. And so I think knowing women tend to be really good at that, seeing the whole picture. And so I think just finding that voice of saying, stop. I'm not saying I know exactly what's going on, but I know we're not moving in the right direction. And I, just like you said, I want to stop this before it's at a catastrophic level. We're going to stop. We're all going to regroup. So I I need everyone who has some information in this, on this scenario, in the same place. And we're going to spend, you know, 10 seconds. Sometimes it doesn't take very long, but we're all going to, instead of everybody kind of doing their own thing, we're going to come together, huddle, figure out, and reassess the scenario together as a team. And then I am going to make a decision how we're going to move forward. It just takes, it really takes, I think, trusting yourself, trusting your experience and trusting your voice. And that's hard. I, I would probably add to that list. It takes a system that is designed to help you get to the point where you can do that. Right. And I think that's the angle that I spend a lot of time approaching it from these days is how do we build a system that enables and encourages and supports that correct behavior in those roles. I think, it, again, it comes back to acknowledging it when you see it. Sure. I, you know, I think mm. that even if it's the quiet person in the corner, when they're saying the right thing, it's saying, hey, Dan, can you say that a little bit louder so everybody can hear it? And giving them the platform to say it instead of me repeating what Dan just said to look like the intelligent one so everybody hears it. I think it is, if there is time, and I know in some of our lives, there's not that opportunity, but even if it's after the fact, you know, even if it's after the fact, going to that person saying, you know what, you were right. You were, you were on the right track. You were doing the right thing. I really encourage you be more confident next time. And then sending that email up the chain saying, so-and-so was spot on today. Shout out to them. I I mean, I really do think it's acknowledging It's acknowledging it when you see it, because oftentimes I think the person who's in that role, even if they appear confident on the outside, getting that feedback is really, really helpful. And on the spot, just short, like you were on it. That was a great call. That was a great decision. That was a great heads up. Great leadership in X, Y, or Z. It can be really quick, but then I think it just reinforces and reinforces. And because sometimes they are really small pickups. You know, usually usually when it's huge and massive, we all see it. But when, you know, when we are taking care of a patient that's declining or the situation just doesn't feel right, it's often those small putting those puzzle pieces together. And so I think acknowledging it when people have done that well gives them the confidence, especially if they're younger, to, to keep developing those skills. Love it. As we wrap all this up, opportunity here to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this. What do you want them to do to do differently? And maybe it's that, right? Maybe it's like highlight the skills of the people around you. But what is it that you want them to do differently on their next their next shift or their next operation? I would say exactly that. When you see something good calling out, don't take it for granted. When you see, and I would also say, if you have a rock star on your team who isn't performing well, ask the question. Because, you know, you could really make a difference in someone's well-being by just saying, hey, is everything okay? So I think on either end, you know, we we all know who our 
the true talent in our teams are sometimes. And, you know, not everybody's going to be the true talent, but we really want to make sure we are acknowledging greatness when we see it, because oftentimes nobody calls it out. And I think that's a way that we lose our confidence by thinking we're here doing a really great job, but then going, well, am I really? Because nobody's like said anything and maybe I'm not doing a great job and maybe I need to be different. So I think just... I think those little pieces of encouragement go a really, really long way and help you develop strong, confident, well-rounded leaders. Um, and then also, you know, I think a great leadership style is checking in on your teammates when they're not on their A game um, and trying to learn from those situations. You know, is there something you can, is, are they just having a bad day? We all have them. Or is there something in the environment that is causing them that way? And that there's something that maybe is, larger systemic that we can make a difference with. Love it. Janet, folks that want to dig more into this, that want to learn more about these issues, about these ideas, uh, that want to help push the conversation forward, that want to learn more about Prosper, how can they do that? Where should they go? Our website's finally done. So it's www.weprosper.co. And then my email is jen at weprosper.co. And we're on Instagram and LinkedIn and everybody can find us. So thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. Amazing. Well, thank you for coming back on the podcast again and, and digging in. I am. Thanks for I'm asking really... these questions. You know, I was super excited. I've been on a ton of podcasts, but they've all been hosted by women. So it's really fun to nice. come. Yeah, it was really fun to come and talk to you today about this stuff because it changes the tone of the conversation a little bit. So it was really fun. Thank you. My pleasure. I have so much to learn about how to do this right. And the you know, the stakes are so high and they're so important. And I, I'm I'm thrilled we're having these conversations. Well, thanks. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind. Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right, good luck out there.